Yes, I have a lot of carryover fire from last night's debate, so get ready. Get ready. Get ready. How many of you were able to come to last night's debate with Dr. Bart Ehrman and I? Yes. It was a great night. I was very pleased with how the debate went. I was joking with people afterwards, though. The real debate happened the night before at Del Frisco's restaurant in West Plano. Because I took uh, Bart to dinner, and him and I debated at that dinner table everything under the sun for two and a half hours. It was good, though. It was happy. I wish that was recorded, though. The, the debate from last night's recorded, but man, that debate that we had at the dinner table, that was really good. But I'm speaking tonight, or this morning, on Paul and the earliest sources for Jesus. I just want you to participate in a thought experiment with me. I want you to think of the most unlikely person that you know, family, friend, coworker, that would bow their knees to Christ. Who's someone that you know that there's no way this person would come to Christ. Now imagine if they did. How would that change you, them, the culture around them? I've got a personal testimony with this, an atheist that I've known for about two and a half years. He grew up Muslim. He's been an atheist for uh, the last decade. He came to Christ in the last month, and it has transformed so many people's lives as a result, Uh, rocked the atheist community that he came out of, rocked the Christian community, and just a blessing to see prayers answered. I mean, this is one of the people I had prayed for. And so it's a powerful thing when somebody who is arguing against the faith, I had many arguments with this guy for for over two years about Jesus and all all kinds of things, to, to come out of that unbelief and to bow the knee to Christ. Now think of a famous person in the world, ones that seem the most unlikely to become a herald for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Imagine if they did come to Christ, like Bill Maher, for example, imagine if he went on HBO's show and said, I believe now Jesus is Lord. Or imagine if Richard Dawkins came out and gave a lecture on the beauties of Christ at Oxford. Or a terrorist leader of ISIS renounced Islam and started proclaiming that Jesus was Allah come in the flesh. He was and is Lord. The last one would actually be one of the closest parallels for what it was like for the persecutor of Christians, Saul of Tarsus, to begin proclaiming in the synagogues and the street corners all throughout Jerusalem and the Roman Empire, this Jesus who was crucified is Lord of all. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, contains our earliest written and unwritten sources for the historical man, Jesus of Nazareth. Let me give you a timeline that I think is kind of helpful for, I showed this last night at the debate, but for sources for Jesus, this is, this is, everyone pretty much agrees on this. So this is not really debated. Even Bart Ehrman last night said, oh yeah, I agree with what, what you have up there. So you have the four gospels, if you go to the, the farthest to the right, written between 60 and 90 AD. That's about 30 to, to 60 years after Jesus, but they're still excellent sources for Jesus because they're sourced in eyewitnesses. Peter's behind Mark, uh, Luke interviewed eyewitnesses and, and, and the rest. Paul's early letters date to about 20 to 25 years after Jesus's death. That's pretty early, but we can go even earlier than that. We can go to creeds and poems and hymns that were probably sung to Christ that date to within five years and at least at most 10 years of Jesus's life. Pretty incredible. And that's the the things I'm going to be showing you this morning. But before we look at them, I want to tell you a little bit about Saul of Tarsus before he became the Apostle Paul. You you may not have heard about the pre-Christian Paul. I want to talk a little bit about him. I think this will also help you understand a little bit about first century Jewish monotheism. Saul was a man of three worlds, Greece, 
Rome, and Jerusalem. We know Saul was born in Tarsus, which was a Greek city. He was raised in Jerusalem as a rabbi in training under Gamaliel. And he was also a Roman citizen. Some have even seen Paul kind of alluding to this in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, as he says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's those three latter words that are significant. Light. Israel was called to be a light to the nations. The word of God was light. Yahweh was the light for his people. Knowledge was what the Greeks sought after. They sought after wisdom, philosophia. They sought after knowledge. And the Rome was all about glory, the glory of Rome. Everybody seen Gladiator? I hope you have. You know, the glory of Rome. They talk about the glory of Rome. And so Paul says, uh, the light of the knowledge of the glory is all fulfilled. It's all, all three of those worlds find their satisfaction, find their fulfillment in the face of Christ. What would have been the most absolute fundamental beliefs of a young zealous Pharisee like Saul of Tarsus? Here's a list of not all the beliefs he had, but we have a pretty good idea of some of the most fundamental beliefs of a first century Jewish Pharisee. And here they are. Monotheism. There is only one God. The temple. The Torah, meaning the law of Moses. Zeal, and I'll explain that more, but that's passion for God and and protecting the ancestral traditions and, and the law of Moses. And then the Messiah. Saul of Tarsus longed for this Messiah to come. Let's first talk about monotheism. As a first century Jewish Pharisee, Deuteronomy 6.4, the uh, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That would have been the center of Saul of Tarsus' whole existence, especially as a rabbi in training. I love what N.T. Wright has to say about the Shema in first century Israel. He says, the most intimate and personal, personal way of t- taking on oneself the yoke of the kingdom of heaven was the praying of the Shema two or more times a day, invoking Yahweh as the one God and determining to love him with mind, heart, and soul. Life itself meant a total commitment to the sovereignty of this one God, the creator, the God of Israel, and a repudiation of all the idols of paganism and the cruel empires which served them. That is more or less the very heart of what monotheism meant to a devout Jew of the period. And by the way, the Apostle Paul did not change his view on this. When he became a follower of Jesus of Nazareth, he still was a monotheist. We'll see this very clearly. He still believed in one God. Just somehow Jesus of Nazareth is now included in that one God. The second is the temple. Saul would have attended synagogue worship regularly, but he would have also gone to the temple multiple times a day for the prayer times. He would have studied the Hebrew scriptures there. And he would have offered animal sacrifices. He would have participated in all the great Jewish festivals, especially Passover. The Torah, the law of Moses. Saul was a very ambitious young man, and he loved the Torah. He studied the Torah more than anything. He tells us that in Philippians. But we also know he studied under one of the greatest rabbis of his day, Gamaliel. In fact, my Orthodox Jewish friend that I talked to, he talks about, he still knows who Gamaliel is. Orthodox Jews today still quote this Gamaliel. He was that famous And Paul says this in Acts 22 about himself. I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you are today. But we also know he was a top student. He was basically the next Gamaliel. Saul would have been the next Gamaliel had he not become a follower of Jesus. We know he was more zealous about the law of God than any of his contemporaries. He tells us this in his autobiography in Galatians 1. This is what he says in the second quote. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. 
And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my own countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Notice the word zeal or zealous occurs in both of those texts. See, that's the fourth one. He was zealous. What did that mean? As a zealous Pharisee, he had great zeal for God, meaning he was passionate about protecting the traditions of his ancestors, the law of God, and especially protecting Israel from heretics and pagan oppressors. Think about some of America's favorite superheroes. What are the great superheroes of America? We got Batman, Superman, Donald Trump. You know, the great superheroes of America. Who would have been Saul of Tarsus's favorite superheroes? He definitely would have looked to people like the prophet Elijah, Phineas from the book of Numbers, and the Maccabees, Judas Maccabeus, and the story of the Maccabean revolt. These are the things that would have inspired a young man like Saul of Tarsus. Why Elijah? Because of the incredible stories, like when he called down fire during a showdown with the prophets of Baal and slaughtered 750 of them, purging the idolatry, purging these heretics from Israel. Elijah was zealous for the, for the Lord. We see that word again in 1 Kings 19. It's a, this is after the uh, destruction of the prophets of Baal. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, tore down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He would have been inspired by Elijah. Phineas would have been another one. He would have been another hero for a zealous young Pharisee. Remember the great children's story of Phineas? I don't know if y'all know that story. He's most famous for destroying the idolaters of Israel who had followed that sorcerer, that witch, Balaam. And this is the story of Phineas. It says, then behold, one of the sons of Israel, this is after all this wickedness with Balaam had happened, and we have this story of of this uh, Israelite man Uh, committing more sin in Israel. And it says, Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation, and he took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. I told you it was a great children's story. I tell my five-year-old daughter that story all the time. She loves that one. But notice, zealous, zeal shows up again in the the actual word of God. Yahweh said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites, for he was as zealous as I am for my honor among them, so that in my zeal I did not put an end to them. Therefore, I tell him, I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. See, a young Saul of Tarsus would have wanted to be zealous for the honor of God. And the story of the Maccabees, this would have inspired him. About 200 years before both Saul and Jesus, there was a wicked king named Antiochus. He came into Israel. He heavily persecuted and killed many Israelites. He burned their scriptures. He took a pig and sacrificed it and put blood all in the Holy of Holies. But Judas Maccabeus and his brothers used guerrilla warfare to fight back, and they rededicated the temple, and that's what's known as Hanukkah. That's what Jews still celebrate today as Hanukkah. In fact, this would make an incredible movie. Do you know Mel Gibson wrote a script, and he was going to direct a movie on the Maccabean Revolt 
He's, he said it would be like a new brave heart, but, for, but you know, he's got personal problems, so it's not happening. So pray for Mel Gibson to make that movie. It would be amazing. You can see how the story would have drove Saul to keep kosher, to protect the Sabbath, the Torah, the temple, and if need be, to take up arms against the pagans if they oppress them. Lastly, the Messiah. Saul, as the Pharisee, would have hoped for all the great promises of God made to Abraham and to David that was prophesied in the Psalms and Isaiah, Daniel, and the rest of of the prophets to come true in his own day. Saul looked to the the Messiah, though, as probably another David. He probably looked at it, this is going to be some man, some some warrior like David that I'm going to follow to fight against the Romans, and we're going to reestablish the kingdom in Jerusalem, and and this Messiah is going to reign from sea to sea. He would have looked at uh, passages like this, Isaiah 9-7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord host will accomplish this. And we have a lot of uh, statements about this new David who would come in the prophets. And this is one example of Jeremiah 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. The last thing that Saul of Tarsus would have ever thought, or any Jew in the first century, is that the Messiah to come would die at the hands of the pagans, or at the hands of the Romans, let alone be crucified. A crucified Messiah was an oxymoron. It was a contradiction in terms, and mainly because of this passage in Deuteronomy, in the law itself. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, the law of Moses says, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed of God. He who is hanged on that tree is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So now imagine Saul of Tarsus, when he first hears about this new Jewish sect called the Way. They weren't even called Christians then that believed that this man Jesus, Yeshua, would have been what they called him, who was crucified, he is the Messiah. God raised him from the dead, they said, and he is Lord of the world. What do you think Saul of Tarsus is ready to do? He's ready to pull an Elijah. He's ready to call down fire from heaven on these people. He's ready to be a Phineas and get that spear and put it right through their heart. He wants to destroy these heretics so they do not lead Israel astray. He probably had texts like this in mind in Deuteronomy 13. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder that comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And this is is, uh, Saul of Tarsus's later the apostle, his own testimony. Look what he says in Acts, 20, in Acts 26 when he talks about what he did. He says, so then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth because he, he believed a curse of God. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. You know what that means? He, tried to, he got them to, say, to curse Christ in some way. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. But then the unthinkable happened. This crucified man, Jesus, who Saul believed was a blasphemer and accursed by God, appeared to him, showed up to him. 
and he tells that story as well in his testimony multiple times. He says, while so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, and this had to have shocked Saul of Tarsus, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This transformation of Saul, the persecutor of Christians, to Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, is one of the most significant events of human history. F.F. Bruce, this great scholar, says, No single event, apart from the Christ event itself, has proved so determinate for the course of Christian history as the conversion and commissioning of Paul. For anyone who accepts Paul's own explanation of his Damascus Road experience, it would be difficult to disagree with the observation of an 18th century writer that the conversion and apostleship of St. Paul alone, duly considered, was itself a demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity to be a divine revelation. I agree. So what did Paul do after this happened, after he has this Damascus Road experience? Well, if you follow the book of Acts, it says he was baptized by Ananias. That's when he got his eyesight back. But Galatians 1 gives us a play-by-play from Paul himself about his autobiography. He says, when God, who set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, that's referring to that Damascus Road experience, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, that's the Aramaic name for Peter, and stayed with him. 15 days. And I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God, I'm not lying. Nobody was saying you were lying, Paul. Why are you saying that? But he went on probably a spiritual pilgrimage to Arabia. First thing he did, notice, he went straight into Arabia. He went on some sort of spiritual pilgrimage. He was probably asking the big questions after having Jesus appeared to him. How can this crucified man, who I thought was accursed of God, how can he be the Messiah? How would God, why would God save me when I was persecuting his people? What does it mean that God raised this Jesus from the dead? And a thousand other questions like that. And so he did this for three years. And then he goes back to Jerusalem. That means that's within five years of Jesus' death. Now this is where most of these scholars, even critical scholars, would say this is when Paul received these, these traditions, these creeds, and, these, uh, and, and, and at least one poem and hymn. This is when he got those writings. That's why they date this early. Remember, we're looking at the earliest sources about Jesus. And notice P- Paul hangs out with Peter for 15 days. Why do you think Paul would want to hang out with Peter for 15 days? I like what one New Testament scholar said at the top. He said, we may presume they did not spend all the time talking about the weather. I mean, what do you think they were doing? They weren't playing video games. They were talking about Jesus. Paul probably wanted to hear everything he could from Jesus' chief disciple. What was Jesus like in his life? What was it like? The stories Peter would have told during those 15 days. Man, I wish we could be there. Just incredible to think about. This information is so incredible that even Bart Ehrman, who I debated last night, he says in his book, Did Jesus Exist? And so in the letter to the Galatians, Paul states as clearly as possible that he knew Jesus' brother. Can we get any closer to an eyewitness report than this? 
Paul knows one of these brothers personally. It's hard to get much closer to the historical Jesus than that. Yes, he's right. This is excellent information. So what then did Paul receive from Peter, James, and the other apostles at this time? Probably a lot of things. But we know he received some of these creedal statements and sayings of Jesus and hymns and poems that he quotes in these early letters that we have in our New Testament. You want to know what these creeds and hymns say? Let me just give you a few of them. The most ancient and early of, of all of them is, is pretty much agreed upon is this 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. This is a creedal statement that Paul received probably within that five years. Probably got it from James and Peter and the other uh, 12 disciples. Paul says to the Corinthians, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. Notice he keeps calling him by his Aramaic name. You know, they're buddies. They hung out with, you know, 15 days. Then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. We know the Lord's brother. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. This is pretty incredible. Notice, remember again, that main, the main part of that creed goes back to within five years of Jesus' death. And what does it say about Jesus? Christ is already his name. It's already a title. It's already, he's, already, he's just known as Christ. Notice it says he died for, the, for sins. He had a substitutionary death. Notice there were scriptures that he fulfilled, clearly referring to our Old Testament scriptures. They were probably thinking of things like Isaiah 53 and, and Psalm 22 and, and certain scriptures that are quoted in the book of Acts. It says he was buried. It says he rose again on the third day, clearly a physical bodily resurrection. It says he appeared to the 12. Notice this is such early testimony that Jesus had 12 disciples. It also says he appeared to more than 500. And Paul even makes kind of a little apologetic here. He says, hey, look, some of those 500, you know, some of them have died. He's talking to the Corinthians. And he says, some of them have died. But you know what? Some of them are still alive. So when your family goes on the trip, don't go to Disneyland. Go to Jerusalem and interview these 500 people, some of these 500 people that saw Jesus. You could talk to them. You could go talk to them. I bet you some of the Corinthians did that. And then James, Jesus' brother, All our sources in the New Testament tell us that James was not a believer in Jesus during his public ministry. How did he become a believer? Paul tells us Jesus appeared to him. How many here have brothers or sisters? What would it it convince you that your brother or sister is God? You know, maybe if they died a horrific, excruciating death and and you knew it and you saw it, and then they came back to you and appeared to you in glory. That might do it. That might do it. Paul adds to this creed, and last of all, he appeared to me. That probably wasn't a part of the original creed. Paul's adding to it, saying, I'm, I'm in line with that list from Peter to me. Jesus didn't have resurrection appearances after Paul. That was the last one. This is the true Apostles' Creed, dating to within five years of Jesus' death. Truly in, in, incredible and unparalleled in the ancient world. There's nothing like it. Let me give you another one. This one's much shorter. This one comes from 1 Corinthians 8. Paul is counseling the Corinthians whether or not they should eat food sacrificed to idols. 
And he cites this creed within this, this, this discussion. He says, therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet, and this is where the creed begins, for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist for him. What's so incredible about this creed is Paul is basically, remember Saul of Tarsus probably prayed the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He prayed that probably twice a day all his life. Now he's basically taken the Shema and he's split it in half. Now he's saying Jesus, the crucified man Jesus, is a part of that Shema. He's the Lord of the Shema. Jesus is the Lord and God in the Shema is God the Father. Truly incredible for a first century Jew to say this. But does that mean that Paul believes in two gods? No, he already said earlier. He said, for us there is but one God. See, so we, we see the, the origins of what we believe in as the Trinity. We see the origins of this pl- plurality within the unity, pr- plurality within the one God. In fact, I love what N.T. Wright says here. He says, a small step in the language, but a giant leap for theology. Jesus is not a second God that would abrogate monotheism entirely. He is not a semi-divine intermediate figure. He is the one in whom the identity of Israel's God is revealed so that one cannot now speak of this God without thinking of Jesus or of Jesus without thinking of the one God, the creator, Israel's God. Another great late scholar, Martin Hengel, says, the binary formula here is the first step on the way to the doctrine of the Trinity. Let me give you the best, I saved the best for last, Philippians 2. I talked about this one last night. Here is probably the one poem or hymn that may have been sung. If it was a, if it was a hymn, it, this might have been one of the hymns to Christ that people sung uh, and, and, and talked about, uh, talk about great theology, right? Um, this is, what, this is uh, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Now, Paul here is counseling the Philippians about self-sacrifice. Don't look out for your own interests. Look out for others' interests. And he points to the ultimate example to compel, to move, the, to, to motivate the, the, the Philippians to do this. What's the ultimate, ultimate example of self-sacrifice and humility? It's Christ. It's Christ. And so he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or exploited. It can be translated either way. But emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed him on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to, to the glory of God the Father. An incredible statement that we have within the first decade of in fact, in fact, Bart Ehrman, uh, in his new book, he says that this creed dates to A.D. 40. So within 10 years of Jesus' death, even the most critical skeptical scholars agree that this goes back to within a decade of Jesus' death. And it was probably originally written in Aramaic. This is probably what the original Jerusalem church was saying and even maybe singing about Jesus. Some have called this a complete Christology in, in condensed form. We have Jesus' pre-existence. We have his incarnation as a human being. He takes the humble form of a slave and dies a slave's death, even the most shameful of deaths, being nailed to a Roman cross. 
and he was raised and super exalted to the right hand of God. He possessed the divine name Yahweh, and all creation, visible and invisible, will bow down and worship him as the true Lord of the world. I mean, let me tell you, it doesn't get higher than that. People talk about how the Gospel of John, which was written towards the end of the New Testament, even Revelation, oh, well, that has high Christology. That, that, that says, that calls Jesus God. No, it's all right here. In the earliest statements about Jesus' divinity in the New Testament, outside the Gospels, this is already saying, already, we already see the highest Christology. And I'm just scratching the surface about how shocking this poem is in a monotheistic Jewish context. Don't forget, this is being quoted by the strict monotheist Saul of Tarsus, who, of course, now believes Jesus is the true Lord of the world. But whoever originally composed this poem is clearly alluding to Isaiah 45, 23, which alongside the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, is one of the most fiercely monotheistic passages in the entire Hebrew Bible. So here we have the two passages that are, all, that, that, that are the strongest monotheistic passages, and Jesus is now in the center of both of them. In fact, in, in that section of Isaiah, in Isaiah 40 through 55, you should read it sometime, it's awe-inspiring. Yahweh is constantly saying, I am the only God. There is no God before me, no God after me. I alone created the heavens and the earth. Worship no other God but me. I'm the only rock. And the allusion in Philippians 2 in that hymn comes from this section of Isaiah 45. And God says, Yahweh says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That, notice, to me, Yahweh says, to me, Every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in Yahweh are righteousness and strength. The earliest hymn to Christ is already placing him equal to God Almighty and worthy of worship of the entire creation. But remember, it's not two gods. No, the New Testament is never saying it's two gods. It is one God, and, it is, and, and we came later to use the language of persons. That's the best language that, that we came up with. But the New Testament doesn't give a word for exactly what they are, but there's two and there's one. And so the best way to say it is two really three, there's other passages I'd bring in to show you how the Spirit, Paul includes the Spirit in the one God as well. But we have three persons and one God. One more thing I want to tell you about this hymn in Philippians that really moved me when I learned it, which I learned just recently as I did a lot of prep for the, for the debate and, and was studying this. Many scholars are arguing that the cross revealed in this hymn, the way the cross is talked about in this hymn is as much a revelation of who God is as his exaltation and majesty and sovereign rule. In other words, this wondrous stoop from heaven to the cross, from the second person of the Trinity, if you want to say it that way, reveals who God is. Our God that we worship is a humble God. That's a part of his very nature, to be humble, to be self-sacrificial, to bow down, to come down and become one of us and die a shameless death on a cross for our sins. In fact, Richard Balcom has a great discussion on this in his book, God Crucified. And he says, can the cross of Jesus Christ actually be included in the identity of this God? The identity of God, who God is, is revealed as much in self-abasement and service as it is in exaltation and rule. Jesus getting on his knees, as he does in John 13, to wash the disciples' feet. And then the ultimate example of sacrifice, his willingness to be nailed to a Roman cross for the sins of the world. This reveals clearly who God is. You want to know what God is like? Who, what is God like? 
you look at the cross. This is what God is like. This is what our God does. This is who he is. Isn't that, that's just so beautiful to me. So I've shared with you just some of the earliest creeds and hymns that say incredible, unparalleled things about Jesus of Nazareth. And all this I've shared with you dates by, even according to critical scholars, 10 years earlier than the first book of the New Testament that was written. So the first book of the New Testament that was written was probably one of Paul's letters, either 1 Thessalonians or Galatians. And that was written about 50. These creeds date 10 years earlier than that. And some of them mean 15, like I said, within the first five years of Jesus of Nazareth. So we have incredible sources for who Jesus is, what they were saying within the first few years of Jesus's, after Jesus's death. Let me go back to that verse in, in uh, Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, verse 22 says, turn to me, Yahweh says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. A really neat thing about that verse, that was the verse that converted the great British preacher, Charles Spurgeon. In fact, if you read much about Spurgeon, you'll, you'll eventually see that. He tells this testimony over and over again. Many times he talks about how he, when he was 15 years old, he was sad and he went into this church and he makes fun of the preacher. He actually talks about how the preacher didn't even know, know good grammar and you know, he made fun of the way he talked. And, but he said that the preacher quoted this verse, turn to me and, you, and turn to me all, the, all the nations of the earth and you will be saved. And he said, God spoke to him and that's when Spurgeon was saved. And I just want to read you one of his one of his many testimonies here of what happened with that verse. I really like this one. He says, I remember the first time it filled my heart, burdened with guilt and full of fears. I was as wretched as a man could be outside of hell. When I heard the voice of the Lord saying, look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. I did look then and there by his grace. I gave a faith glance to him who suffered in my place, and in an instant, my peace was like a river. My heart leaped from despair to gladness, and I knew my Lord to be divine. If the Lord Jesus turns your mourning into dancing, if he brings you up out of the horrible pit and out of the miry clay and sets your feet upon a rock and establishes your goings, he is sure to be your Lord and God from that time on and forever. I pray you would, like Spurgeon, like Saul of Tarsus, and like so many other billions, Give that faith glance to this crucified one, and then you would have peace like a river. And he is sure to be your Lord and God for now and forevermore. Thank you.